Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to Studying Media Critically, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm your host, Gomo Claire, and today I'm joined by Nicole Starosielski, who's an Associate Professor of Media, Culture and Communication at NYU Steinhardt School of Culture, Education and Human Development. We'll be talking about her fascinating new book, Media Hot and Cold, which was published in October 2021. Welcome to the show, Nicole. Thanks for having me. So on the NBN, we usually start with a biographical question. Um so with this in mind, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your kind of scholarly and professional background? So I was not always a scholar of temperature. I started out in uh, cinema studies, actually, when I was an undergraduate. And then I went and did my PhD in film and media studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. And then from there, I started um, sort of deviating from the from the kind of traditional path of cinema and media and started studying undersea cable systems, which carry all of our, almost all, not 99% of our transoceanic internet communications. And I did a project called the Undersea Network, where I tracked these subsea cables across the ocean. Um, And that was my first book. And at the end of that book, I wanted to do a different kind of project. I had some same central concerns in that book that sort of remained unresolved and some some empirical cases that were really interesting to me. And one of those was air conditioning. And I was fascinated by the fact that in all of these cable landing stations that I went to, one of the most important facets of the operation was the HVAC, really kind of sorting out temperature, sorting out thermal conditions. And so I became very interested in in temperature during that project. And then at the same time, I ended up moving from, uh, you know, California to Cincinnati, where I was teaching at uh, Miami University of Ohio. And it, I remembered having grown up on the East Coast of the United States, I remembered what temperature was like, having spent about a decade in California, not having thought much about temperature, because so many of the environments had been climate controlled. Um, and there's a very special relationship to, to California, um, to temperature in California. And so I started thinking even more about temperature and I thought I'd like to do a book next that's, you know, undersea cables. I was always talking about something that I had a lot of expertise about and my audience didn't. And so, you know, after I gave a talk on undersea cables, people would have many, many questions. And then I would just sort of tell them about what was happening in the world of of subsea networking. And I wanted a project where I could listen to people 
And it turns out that now when I give talks on temperature, and I'm sure that you also have this, like if I asked you, you could give me anecdotes, you could give me experiences, you would have a lot to say about temperature and most people do. And so I love that about this project. Um, and so then I guess to complete the, the intellectual and physical journey, I then got a job at NYU where I am uh, still currently working and I thought, and that's where I really began in earnest, this project on temperature was on back on the East Coast of the United States, thinking about how thermal conditions were shaped by architectures, by social practices, uh, by technologies, all of which function to mediate thermal conditions for us. Mm -hmm. And the book also starts with a, the preface has got a really evocative discussion of farm work and how agriculture is what you call a, a practice of temperature. Could you tell us a little bit about your experience with, with farms and how that's fed into your work on thermal media? Yeah, so that came, so after I was, you know, I was living in New York City and I started um, working on and then started um, working, like developing um, my own farm um, with my partner and that we we started out veggie farmers we then got chickens uh, we then moved into livestock and all of this work um, which kind of you know was very distant from but a perfect complement to uh, you know the kind of academic and intellectual work that I would be doing at NYU in my office um, all of that farm work was really this practice of temperature. So it's constantly sort of modulating and controlling thermal environments, uh, thermal signals, trying to manage life. And everything um, that I was doing there was informing what I was writing. So it was, and I was constantly writing out in the field. Like I was, I wrote a lot of this using voice to text or just typing it on my cell phone. I you know, wrote a lot of this book um, on pieces of paper while I was outside. And so I spent a lot of time writing um, while I was actually farming. And so that, I think that inflects the book because it became intertwined with or kind of entangled with the practices of temperature of, of my everyday life, which were, you know, not sitting in an air conditioned room, um, r rarely if ever sitting in an air conditioned room. Yeah. I think it immediately gets the reader thinking about temperature as as you speak about throughout the whole book as you know a fundamentally such a haptic experience and it it's such a kind of grounding way to start the book and I, yeah I really enjoyed that um and then the introduction of the book you do a really great job in arguing for temperature as the basis for I guess a new research agenda in media studies a kind of what you call a critical temperature studies and one point you make emphatically here and then throughout the book is that the widespread acceptance of temperature as neutral or a universal phenomenon is actually deeply ideological. So could you explain exactly what you mean by thermal objectivity, how it works, how it's circulated as an ideology, and maybe the role it plays in the exercise of what you call thermopower? Yeah, so thermal objectivity is what I describe um, what I would say the kind of dominant thermal ideology is today. So if, you know, one of the arguments of the book is that in media studies and cultural studies and communication studies um, in many humanities fields, there have been, there's been a focus on text, there's been a focus on vision, there's been a focus on sound more recently, and haptics and touch, right? So there have been all of these kinds of theorizations of different kinds of media objects, media processes, by looking at, um, kind of content as it is circulated through the materiality of, you know, a book, a screen, a, a camera, 
um, and so on. And all of these have been talked about in terms of these sort of visual, textual, sonic, and more recently haptic dimensions, but rarely have they ever been talked about as as thermal objects. Um, and they haven't usually been talked about in terms of thermal communication, even though they clearly both traditional media objects have a therm a capacity for thermal communication and communicate through temperature. Um, and as in the case of one of the cases of the book is talking about cold exploitation cinema, which is all of the cinema that harnesses images of temperature to try to change the thermal, you know, landscape of the viewers so through the synesthetic work, right? So there are all these cases where obviously temperature has been used as a mode of communication and media has been used as a mode of thermal regulation. And yet this is all uh, outside of and hasn't been discussed in media studies um, or cultural studies. And so that's what I wanted to do with this book project. Um, so the first thing to do then was to sort of outline, well, how do people think about temperature? And that's where I came up with this concept of thermal objectivity. Most people, kind of the dominant ideology of temperature is that, you know, temperature is something that is external to us. An environment is a temperature. It is registered numerically through a thermometer. So I can say, oh, it's about, you know, 70 degrees right now in this room. It's a little bit on the warm side. Uh, that 70 degree mark, then I would say, you know, the, the dogs that are sleeping on the floor also feel the 70 degrees. Everybody feels 70 degrees. You know, the, the notepad that's on this desk is also 70 degrees. Like I could say 70 degrees is a kind of, uh, representation of this room, my conception of this room, a relationship to this room, to this room as environment that uh, in which we believe kind of collectively in our sort of shared knowledge that there is an objective way to understand temperature. And that is as 70 degrees compared to the fact that like, you know, I'm sitting in one place talking to you uh, over the internet for this podcast. And so, you know, my before this, I was moving around a lot. So I would probably going to be pretty warm at the beginning of this podcast. And I'm going to be cooler at the end of this podcast, despite the fact that the room is going to stay the same temperature. My metabolism will have shifted. My bodily activity will have shifted. And so my perception of temperature is actually quite variable as yours would be should, would, were you sitting in the same room. So there's all this complexity going on with temperature. And yet, we all we reduce it to a kind of an objective property of an external environment, 70 degrees. And then we just say, okay, we know temperature without necessarily opening the door, which is what I want to do with this book, opening the door to all these other ways of knowing and communicating via thermal phenomena. Yeah, absolutely. And and so you make the case there that experiences of temperature are very personally contingent depending on activity and uh, your kind of your past and lots of other things like that but also that they're quite culturally contingent as well and so you make the case that uh, there's a kind of a dominant form of thermoculture but you also outline some outline some really fascinating but marginalized um, kind of thermocultures that are being pushed out could you give some examples of these marginalized cultural understandings of hot and cold and how they might diverge from hegemonic frames of temperature and then I guess maybe their entangle the entanglement of uh, thermal normativity with the European colonial project right so there have been many people uh, who have written about this sort of thermal normativity of the European colonial project. And 
of, you know, kind of Western temperature standards and so on. Um, and that's that kind of gets around to thermopower, right, which is the the uh, exercise and enactment of political power through these thermal forms of thermal or organization. And those might be technical infrastructures, but they also might be knowledges. So Western knowledges of temperature scaffold and are, you know, entangled with this sense of thermal objectivity. Whereas you can look at a lot of marginalized uh, thermocultures. And so there are a couple cases in the book they're talking about. One draws from a, a brilliant book that's coming, forthcoming um, in the, uh, the Elements book series that this book is also a part of from Duke University Press by He Hobart that is called Cooling the Tropics. Um, and that book is uh, really sketches out how in Hawaii, ice was uh, kind of deployed as part of a kind of colonial project, but also gets taken up in all these complex and complicated ways and comes, and that sort of indigenous ways of knowing temperature didn't fit into this sense of thermal objectivity, didn't sit into a sort of sense of ice that was, uh, you know, spread alongside the ice trade. Rather, um, one of the things that Hobart talks about is that you have um, for uh, you know, indigenous folks, they have um, a sense of temperature where heat and cold, is, heat and cold are closer to each other than they are to a kind of imagined normal state, right? So as sort of extremes on a spectrum, it's not that heat and cold are hot and cold are the farthest points away from one another, but they're actually closer to each other than they are to, you know, neutral. That's just an example of a thermal knowledge that is not, um, you know, that doesn't accord with a kind of numerical scale that is, is kind of has a particular kind of cultural uh, location, resonances, um, and is as a result also intertwined with these forms of thermopower. Um, so I think that one of the things that I wanted to do in the book, this is kind of very in many ways, very elementary analysis for anyone who's doing cultural studies, right? Like you can hopefully hear in this, this is something that people have been studying in terms of culture and vision for a long time. What is a Western sort of colonial or imperial vision look like compared to sort of marginalized forms of vision? We've had decades of like really great work on that, but we have similar problems and dynamics in terms of temperature. And so it's really, really important to address that in a moment of climate change when we're encountering all of this, you know, intense thermal variability. And we have to have a consideration of what temperature means and what it is and who knows it um, without necessarily collapsing it into, uh, you know, that there that, uh, you know, temperature can mean anything. It can't. It's structured like through these regimes of thermal mediation. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that comes through really strongly, I think. Um so moving on to the body of the book, you you start by tracing the development and the widespread adoption of the thermostat as a kind of case study. Could you talk a bit about how the development of the thermostat um, and its marketing to consumers has tended to connect thermal stability to capitalist, racialized and heteronormative understandings of the domestic sphere and social reproduction? 
Yes. So the thermostat, I mean, it was one of those, it was one of the objects, the first half of the book are objects that are, would be thought of as sort of thermal technologies, classic thermal technologies, um, and understanding. And then I analyze them as they mediate and communicate, um, and the structures of meaning and power that they're implicated in. And then the second half of the book are technologies that you would, um, look at more clearly as like media technologies, you know, such as, uh, you know, the infrared camera and understanding how it works as a thermal medium. So the thermostat, I started with the thermostat because it's, it is one of the sort of dominant, uh, you know, technologies, thermal technologies for the enactment and exercise of thermal power. And when I tracked the thermostat over the course of the, you know, late 19th, early 20th century, one of the things that I found is that the first thermostats, if you track it beyond a technical apparatus, and you think about thermos, the thermostat as also a, a social configuration, a social formation, the earliest thermostats were not uh, technologies, but they were, they were women um, who would work in these you know, aristocratic households, working on maintaining fires and even uh, within the kind of other domestic spheres, maintaining uh, the temperature of an interior space for the benefit of others, right? And so in that sense, like their bodies were enfolded into these uh, systems of regulation where their skin was sensor, sensing the heat and cold, they would be listening for instructions or for the heat and cold, the thermal expressions of others. And then they would modulate the, you know, the stoves and the fires, um, bringing coal or wood to be able to make sure that that temperature would meet the expectations of others, right? So you have this deep history of women's work in temperature and in thermal management uh, that that predates and then gets kind of folded into the thermostat, right? So the thermostat automates some segments of this process. And obviously this process is also um, kind of uh, extends with, a, you know, its own gendered connotations. It has its own kind of sexualized uh, formations embedded in it. It is also a racialized process. And so all of those kinds of social uh, constructions of um, activity in relation to temperature get folded into thermostatic operation. And so what happens with the early thermostat in the early 20th century is that you have all of these people who are using it. And I track this through looking at advertisements of thermostats, right? And how often the thermostat is seen as um, in the early 20th something centuries as something that is going to equalize uh, gender uh, tension. Uh, gender difference um, because you know once the husband comes home from work if he can have an even temperature then he will not uh, be upset with his wife right so it's about extending the care <laughs> for the um, you know care for the husband through the thermal management system and so you know the thermostat becomes you know an extension of the wife sometimes the extension of the mistress sometimes the extension of you know the the housekeeper or the nanny or whatever the formation is, uh, the kind of social formation is like the thermostat gets layered into that, into these structures of power. So you can say, okay, there's patriarchy, right? And here is how thermostats scaffold that and are taken up into that system to enact thermal norms that are set for some people's bodies, some people's pleasures over others. 
Yeah, and, and that's really striking in your discussion of the um, scientific research into comfort temperatures that even while they're trying to account for a degree of variation amongst potential users, still cater exactly to a kind of, I think it's the, you use the term universal thermal subject, which is a, which is a, a white man wearing, wearing a suit, it, um, which I found really, a really interesting kind of uh, aspect of this chapter. Yeah, so that was the other, the other thread is looking at these, you know, temperature standards, which, so you have thermostatic operation, which happens in the home, but also in the workplace and in public spaces, but in, in workplaces and public spaces and institutional environments, there are often, there are the development of these standards. And so thermal standards then get set on the basis of certain sets of studies. And a lot of times these studies are white men wearing suits. Um, and those uh, kind of originary thermal subjects are folded their their pleasures and their sense of what you know temperature everything should be is then folded into the um, into the the set of standards that today is you know still remain dominant around the world although there have been you know reflections on the standards and attempt to you know uh, expand the standards to account for cultural difference uh, geographic difference um, gender difference and uh, to, to sort of it's been a sort of like thermal multiculturalism that occurred especially in the 1990s through the current day where now we're at a point where the kind of dominant move is to personalize temperature so everyone gets to be their own proper temperature and so the answer to there being problematic standards, is at least as per the latest technologies to just get rid of standards and let everybody do their own thing, um, which of course is is problematic in all sorts of respects. Um, but I think that the, what that evidence is is that the mode of thermopower, right, early in the 20th century was this broadcast mode, like so many other media, because people were thinking, how should we organize temperature? And they were also looking at, you know, mass media and kind of mass culture. And so organizing temperature as a kind of uh, mass phenomenon made sense, right? And today we're in this kind of digital, personalized, uh, hyper-networked environment. So it makes sense then to think about temperature in that way. You touch on this at the end of your discussion of cold exploitation too, about high-tech personalized cooling devices. And you implicate a little bit of a connection between this and a uh, individualized politics of climate and a potential kind of quietism towards a change in climate. Could you maybe expand on that a little bit? Because I really, I really found that a very kind of generative idea. So yeah, so this is in the second chapter in which one of the things that I was tracking is these sets of films that come up in the 1920s that really exploit <clears throat> a sense of cold in order to, uh, you know, a sense of cold being, uh, whether it's fans, um, but primarily films and Arctic environments and uh, the visuality of Arctic environments and, you know, uh, the, the decoration of the lobby to invite people, you know, manipulating that decoration in order to invite people in uh, to feel cool on a hot on a hot summer's day. This all precedes the actual deployment of air conditioners, which happens in the 1930s, largely, later 1920s into the 1930s. And so what you see is that there is an exploitation of cooling um, that, that is intended to sort of draw people in by creating this 
environment, right? So the focus is on kind of the ambient, the environmental, the atmospheric. And basically, if you come to this place, the cinema, you will be cooled through images, through, uh, you know, sounds, through, uh, you know, the air that you are feeling. And now what we're seeing is a, a different kind of focus. And so one of the kind of exemplary technologies of the current moment is this uh, kind of ember wave wristband. And what this wristband does is it cools a particular spot on your wrist and it, it makes you feel hot or cold personally, like just your body, right? So it's using this thermoelectric technology that's taking electricity and using that to generate a temperature differential and then using that on a specific spot in your body to try to cool your whole body, heat your whole body, and it works to make you perceive the environment as cooler. So it's not about cooling the environment so you can cool people. It's about directly cooling individuals. And so that's where this kind of frontier of technology is developing. Um, and how people are then thinking about this is in terms of sort of both networked potential, but also in terms of hyper-personalized thermal spheres. And so the kind of imaginary that comes along with this is that, okay, well, if I wear a number of wave wristband, then I can be responsible for my heat and my cold <laughs> and my temperature, right? So it offloads that kind of responsibility. So say, okay, well, you just wear this wristband and then you'll be able to manage your temperature. But the problem is, is that that doesn't work with climate change. It's an ideology that kind of capitalizes on and makes you think, uh, you know, that this is a solution to climate change, right? That now you can have these personalized heating and cooling devices, right? Like a blanket or something like that, or ice. But it's got a ton of problems in that then you've you've uh, kind of woven into the social fabric, this sort of neoliberal approach where people are individually responsible to change their own temperature. And they need individual technologies, expensive individual technologies in order to modulate their own temperature while disavowing the fact that things like movement, uh, stasis, uh, food, uh, metabolism, um, how close or far you are from other people, whether you're sick or healthy, um, how, where you can live, what you can live with, what kind of infrastructures you have access to, if you have water, all of these things are as powerful <laughs> in changing your sense of temperature as a, as a little wristband. And so if you give somebody a wristband, you can say, well, I guess we don't need to supply you with water socially right? Even though you need water to be able to cool off. <laughs> um, the focus is not on provision of infrastructures or on a social landscape that is inhabitable in the wake of like exceptionally, like extraordinarily volatile climates and weather. Um, rather, the focus is on individual technologies and objects that one individual can have and thus make sure that they can create a little thermal bubble. So it's actually the opposite direction that we want to be going in if we actually want to mediate, um, ameliorate the, um, the, the substantial harms of being subject to a thermal volatility. And your discussion there of, you know, the importance of the capacity to uh, perspire and to metabolize and the importance of all of these kind of broader societal questions, that structures your the chapter where you discuss the quite horrific history of different ways that extremes of environmental temperature have been used as a means of punishment or torture and even murder. And you focus particularly on the sweat box here. So could you explain what uh, 
thermal violence means in this context and why it has been and remains such an effective means of enacting violence and specifically on racialized groups. So, yes, thermal violence is the the sort of capacity to to shape somebody's thermal landscape or their their uh, kind of uh, thermal composition uh, to enact harm. And so this is something that has been going on for centuries. And one of the things that I did in this chapter is track back the sweat box as a kind of racialized technology of, of, of violence um, in the American South, and particularly as it's entangled with uh, enslavement. And so that, uh, that history then lasts through the current moment. You can see how the sweat box uh, today exists in prisons, where sweat boxing is not just like a cell that you put people in. And even after they got rid of these cells, basically, you put somebody in a cell and that architecture, that architecture could be wood or concrete um, or any sort of material that can intensify the sun's rays um, uh, or, on, you know, conversely, can can you know, overcool you or overheat you. Um, and you're confined in space, so you can't move. You're often food and water is withheld. And so it's a way of enacting thermal violence and hurting somebody and harming them and killing them um, by manipulating their temperature without touching them. So this is how, you know, this is how people, how, you know, prison guards can murder uh, people who are imprisoned because they have technologies like the sweat box to be able to manipulate the thermal landscape and manipulate somebody's interior thermal composition. And so I think that what examining this allowed me to do is to make a couple of claims that were really important to me and I think important to the book. And the first is that no matter how much, even if we were to just say like, stop climate change tomorrow, like if it just magically like climate change, you know, was everyone just like, got together. And I think this is like the fantasy, right? Like if everyone gets together, we can stop climate change. That's not actually going to stop thermal violence. Thermal violence has been like underway and institutionalized and enacted for centuries long before people were talking about climate change or interested in climate change. And so the thermal violence is going to continue. So the idea that if you get rid of climate change, people will not be overheated. People will not be subject you know, to to death um, and that you will not see these technologies taken up um, as a way of using, you know, weather and climate to, to injure people. Um, that is a separate question, right? So it forces us to then look ethically and look, you know, at the accountability of actually, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, what is happening on the ground, who is being harmed, how do we reverse that? How do we account for that? without saying, okay, well, the issue is the global climate. No, the issue is actually like the people who are being harmed. So let's talk about who is being overheated and how, and what that's, what we can do to sort of mitigate those, um, those processes that are already in, you know, underway. So I think that's one thing that really was, I think, a key point. And then the second point that I wanted to make out of kind of tracking through this history is to argue that we need to look at at thermal autonomy. Um, and this is not thermal personalization or thermal individualization. This is not, thermal autonomy is not wearing an ember wave wristband. <laughs> um, is not about, uh, you know, heating and cooling yourself. It's about being able to have the capacity to regulate your own thermal existence. And this is fundamentally also a social activity because people's 
uh, ability to regulate their thermal existence depends on what kinds of activities they engage in, what kind of food they have access to, how they can metabolize, what kinds of norms they're subject to, how they make sense of temperature. And all of these are cultural as well. So this has to be determined. Uh, thermal autonomy can only materialize on a, a sort of collective level at the kind of a local or potentially a regional scale. Um, because people can't have thermal autonomy if they if their wristband breaks and they don't have the technical capacity to sort out how to fix their wristband, or if all the data from their thermostat, their digital thermostat, is being sent elsewhere, and those you know, uh, and and a company somewhere else has the ability to turn the heat on and off in your house, like that is the opposite of thermal autonomy. Thermal autonomy is is with your community being able to regulate temperature and talk about temperature and make decisions about temperature that will help that community or that kind of collectivity, however it is, you know, formed, uh, address the kinds of thermal violences to which they will be subject in as climate change intensifies. And I think that's uh, something that this chapter particularly makes really clear, the gulf in the context, particularly of climate change, between consumer freedom and meaningful autonomy. And yeah, I think, yeah, climate change really brings that into focus very, very prominently. And that, that's a really important theme that comes through throughout the book. One aspect of thermal violence that um, I found really striking, you know, you're talking about in the context of the sweat box, but also other forms as well, was the absence of accountability and the unpredictability of, you know, overheating due to the way that the body self-regulates. Could you expand on that a little bit and how that is used by users of thermal violence to absolve themselves of responsibility. Right. So I think this is one of the things that I recognized as I started to examine thermoception, like the sense of temperature and how people perceive it, is that there is, like with all media, we've moved past uh, moments of determinism to be able to say, you know, that, you know, television, for example, uh, doesn't always produce the same effects for the same viewers, uh, nor do video games, um, even if there are patterns, right? And so that's one of the great interventions and contributions of media studies is to think about all of these kind of complex ways that technologies of communication get taken up and then uh, sort of reshape, um, you know, behaviors, sensations. Um, but all of these are also not just governed by culture um, or governed by this kind of system of power, but also, you know, reflect personal experience and get layered into, you know, embodied sensation that has its own history, um, whether that be a kind of history of being structured through sort of normative regimes or a history of trauma and so on. So I think that one of the things that is true about temperature as well is that, you know, researchers can't say and have not been able to say that a certain set of thermal phenomena will necessarily be perceived or received in a certain way with a, a given body, right? Like it just, there are some extreme cases where you say, okay, you point a heat ray gun at somebody, like they're probably going to jump away. But, you know, air conditioning, you know, uh, some people like it, some people don't like it. They, it turns out that Americans tend to like it more often. That's a culturally constituted um, or kind of culturally inflected desire. And it's a thermal desire uh, that people are kind of pursuing and interested in. Um, and that is sh that's shaped culturally. 
And yet it is also shaped individually by like experiences that one has growing up, uh, you know, in certain kinds of environments. But again, not uh, like you're you grow up in one particular you know, city and that has an, an average temperature, but maybe you grew up and you tend to be always standing in the shade or not moving very much um, or constrained or confined. It's going to be very different than somebody who grows up always running. And what are the circumstances of having to run? Um, so all of that past and that past is both kind of individual and sort of personal, but is also cultural because those, you know, people don't develop outside of culture and outside of society, those paths get drug up when you experience thermal phenomena. And so that's why you can sense there are patterns in, okay, like lots of people, lots of Americans like air conditioning because it's also a culture, but also kind of highly individual responses. So there's not a predictive model of what temperature is going to mean or do for people. And researchers realize this. But also perpetrators of thermal violence realize this, right? So this enables somebody who is putting another person into a sweat box to say, well, you know, I didn't realize this person was going to die. Um, other people haven't died at the same temperature. Like, you know, it's, it's highly individual. Like the circumstances meant, meant that I could not predict. I could not have predicted the harm that I was doing. And so it enables the kind of use of extreme heat or extreme cold or manipulation of temperature in order to harm and then be able to say, well, I couldn't have predicted that outcome. So in that way, it's kind of it's similar to other uses of media for for torture or harm. Well, one thing that interested me was that a lot of the case studies that you examine, so cold exploitation media and the emergence of the thermostat or the, the technological thermostat and infrared seem to emerge around the start of the early 20th century. So what do you think is happening at the beginning of the 20th century that's driving so much technological experimentation with thermal media? I mean, I think there's technological experimentation with thermal media even before that. But this is a particular kind of technological experimentation with thermal media that uh, there's a huge crossover with um, other forms of media. Right. So in the chapter on the heat ray, for example, one of the things that I track is on uh, about the, the relationship between radio technologies and early thermal media. Right. So you have both like radio emitting heat, people recognizing that radios emit heat, people imagining that like you're going to broadcast heat across the city the same way that you broadcast radio signals. So that imagination of you know heat as something that gets broadcast by a radio apparatus emerges because you know thermal media are being experimented with in the same way that you know non-thermal or you know uh, media that is both thermal and exceeds the thermal um, are being experimented with. So radio becomes experimented with is experimented with as a thermal medium um, during that period during the 1920s. Um, and you have infrared photography also being the subject of experimentation, but also photography in general is a subject of experimentation then um, during that moment. Uh, and so I think that that you see this this experimentation with media forms sort of bleeding over into thermal mediation. And I picked this moment because while that exists both before and after, 
there's this intense moment in which there's this crossover between, you know, cinema, radio, um, you know, even phonographs, uh, all of these forms of media and uh, temperature during the early 20th century, because there's this reconceptualization of an audience as like a thermal audience or uh, as, you know, uh, temperature technologies are getting sort of standardized and crystallized in particular forms. It's it's mirroring a larger cultural transition to mass culture um, and to mass media that then gets taken up in temperature and through temperature. So I think that's, I guess this is to say the, the, the experimentation is always there, but the particular form of kind of mass media and mass thermal media, broadcast thermal media, um, those are, this is the moment that I think is really key for understanding that transition. And that's the, the first major transition, at least from a sort of media studies perspective, before we get to the current moment, when we think about the transition to networked and personalized thermal media. So it's really interesting. And you mentioned there about um, the overlap between thermal media and what is now more commonly understood as kind of media forms like radio. And there's a really interesting number of kind of inventions, which at face value seem like scientific marginalia, you know, that experiments that don't amount to a huge amount in their own terms, but then turn into vital parts of contemporary infrastructure. Could you talk a little bit about that and the development of fiber optic and those technologies and how they come about? Yeah, so this is one of the most explicit um, cases that connects to my earlier work on undersea cables. So fiber optic cables carry um, almost, you know, they carry internet traffic, they carry domestic internet traffic, they carry global internet traffic. And these, the one of the things that I discovered while I was doing research, and I didn't even know this when I first started studying fiber optics, because I just thought, oh, it's light, right? Optics. Um, but they're actually in the, the signals are in the infrared range. And so it would be, you know, I, I started thinking, well, what would it mean to think about the internet as a, as you know as a medium of heat rays rather than of light rays, right? Because often we think about light as only visible light, and we think about it as entangled with you know visuality. But if we think about it instead as heat waves, waves, or we think about it in relation to kind of uh, kind of dynamic thermal entanglement then we can see different properties um, and different phenomena in our current fiber optic you know, landscape and technologies. And so one of these that I study in the book is on distributed temperature sensing, which is basically the capacity of these um, you know, fiber optic signals to be affected by the thermal environment <laughs> in, which they, in which they are passing and thus to, to work as a sort of temperature sensor. So in that sense, using specialized technology, you can actually sense the temperature around all of these internet cables um, and and tur turn the internet essentially into a giant thermometer. And so that's one of the things, you know, it's like a case that I can understand because I'm starting to look at heat, I'm starting to look at infrared, um, and thus I'm led to that. So when I was examining that, I also wanted to look at the precursors for those technologies and for this current moment. So I was looking back to, you know, early uh, heat sensing technologies and early 
um, you know, scientific technologies that didn't really go anywhere, but yet set the, um, you know, set the stage for the emergence of fiber optics. And so in the late 19th century, you get all of these experiments um, and you get experiments with, you know, using kind of heat and light and infrared rays uh, as signals. Um, and that those don't actually get, you know, those don't crystallize into a mass medium. Instead, you know, you get radio, um, but you don't get uh, the use of light, for example. That use of light, including infrared light, sort of just goes into the sort of background of the kind of scientific experimentation. You know, there's a little bit done with it, but not very much until you get to the moment of fiber optics. And so one of the things that being able to track these kind of long histories of thermal media and tracking, you know, what we would call a kind of traditional media technology, such as like, you know, a communications cable as a thermal medium does is it brings us to other precursors and other kind of origin points for, for contemporary uh, communications. The infrared uh, connections are, are super interesting, and including your discussion of infrared camera technology. You make the case that despite the claims of the industry, it's actually very far from a neutral form of imaging. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and how it's framed as neutral but isn't, and also about the connection between the political economic crises of the 1970s and then the advent of infrared cameras as a component of contemporary thermopower and governance. Yeah, so one of the things when I was looking at the uh, the infrared camera, which is the subject of um, one of the chapters in the second half of the book, I did a similar uh, analysis tracking from the early infrared experiments in the you know early 20th century to the 1970s, which is this key moment in which you get the development of new forms of infrared sensing and particularly the domestication of new forms of infrared sensing. So you're no longer seeing, uh, you know, prior to that, it's, uh, you know, most of the first half of the 20th century, you have infrared cameras that are looking at, um, you know, a relatively narrow spectrum of infrared light. Um, it's not uh, portraying heat uh, that is sort of emitted from a body in the same way um, as later uh, developments in technology in the 1960s and 70s lead to these kinds of heat sensing infrared cameras. And one of the things that these cameras start um, being used for, and you know, the military history of these cameras has been, you know, written and people have focused on that kind of military history. But one of the things that I didn't see was the ways that when I was reading these histories was the ways that these infrared cameras were used intensely as a kind of um, social form in the the 1970s to reduce uh, you know energy <laughs> energy costs uh, reduce energy expenditure and were basically enlisted as uh, you know um, part of this uh, you know. Uh, sensing apparatus to be able to look at people's houses and see, okay, like, you know, this is where your windows are letting out a whole lot of heat. Um, so they would be doing these energy audits um, in the 1970s. And that's where, you know, uh, thermal cameras started being used where people would start to perceive them, um, you know, not just in a sort of medical space or a military space, but as, uh, as part of an energy audit technology, as part of a technology that was meant to basically look at the building that you were in 
and to assess where there was like, you know, heat that was escaping, you know, excess resources that were escaping and how you could kind of conserve. So it's bound up with this conservation movement. Um, and so through that, through that energy audit system, the, you know, many people came into contact with thermal cameras and they were carried around. Um, they, you know, dropped in price uh, they, and they were domesticated in this way. They were used to, to reshape what the home was. At the same time, what they did is they transformed the home into a thermal medium, right? The home was already a thermal medium, but the popular perception of the home you know, refracted through this perception of the infrared camera used in energy audit, transformed the home into something that needed to be, you know, insulated or thought through carefully in terms of energy expenditure and waste. And so that's one of the primary kind of functions of thermal cameras, I think, is that they transform their subjects into thermal media that can then be sort of manipulated um, or kind of subject to subject to uh, the exercises of thermal power. Um, so in that case, it's it's this medium that helps to to bring object its objects and subjects into the sphere of thermal power into the sphere of thermal manipulation. And so you can see how this then works um, in you know a wide variety of different uses of thermal cameras, whether that's on the battlefield, or whether that's in people's homes, or whether that's monitoring conservation, you know, uh, efforts, um, whether it's uh, you know in the field or, or or you know pointed in architecture, there are all sorts of subjects that then get transformed into uh, a site for the exercise of thermal power, and so there's. Uh, there's not this actual thermal neutrality that is present with the thermal camera or the thermal camera. Rather, what the thermal camera does is it kind of translates uh, its subjects into this kind of, you know, pseudo thermal objective image that can be manipulated, all while sort of disavowing the fact that like it is enlisted in these projects of manipulation. Yeah. So once again, it's one of those kind of. Um... Yeah, disavowal of responsibility on the basis of on the basis of thermopower, much like with thermal violence. Yeah, that was a, a really a really fascinating um, argument there. And then, then the final chapter you discuss the coldwood course of modern media infrastructure, where civilizational progress seems to be bound up with the capacity for cooling huge data centers, even as the planet is warming up. So, could you explain the nuts and bolts of what this means in practice and how it seems to be exacerbating existing global inequities? Yeah, so the this also folds back to my earlier and current work on, you know, internet infrastructure and the ways that no matter what internet infrastructure, you know, consumes energy and emits heat. Um, there have been improvements in efficiency that have made this less, um, uh, it used to look like it was going to be totally out of control. It's still out of control, but now it looks like they're at at least this critical mass of people who are in data center industry who are really trying to develop more sustainable ways of storing and sharing information. So that's the kind of core dynamic is that you have all of this internet infrastructure that is essentially um, part of the, you know, it's intensifying climate change. So what do you then do about that? So within the industry, you have 
a whole, you know, uh, many different approaches. And so some of these are shaped around efficiency, right? Um, you know, getting more done for less energy. Some of these are shaped around uh, temperature standards. Um, so for example, one of the cases that I looked at in, in this uh, chapter is to look at this uh, metric called PUE. And PUE is this ratio of how much energy a building uses, such as the data center, um, and the you know percentage of the building's energy use that's used for, say, cooling just the equipment or thermally stabilizing equipment versus thermally stabilizing uh, you know the whole building in relation to the exterior environment. And one of the things that this does is it innately sort of privileges environments which are sort of uh, quote unquote naturally cooler um, or have or you know it kind of subtends um, it 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 works to to help scaffold all of the kind of recent developments uh, of moving kind of data centers or developments of data centers in uh, Nordic countries. And so you can see there's this push to, you know, to lower cooling costs, um, to lower the amount of energy that's used. And, and this is like a, a really viable and valid approach to, to trying to reduce energy usage, except for that, it's structured by these standards that innately sort of privilege um, particular regions of the world. And so you see this exercise of thermal power here, where if you just follow that sort of one set of standards and you just follow PUE, for example, you will, you know, you'll not want to set up you new know, data centers in places like Singapore um, or in the tropics. And that's uh, that's not also that's also not a viable approach forward. But it's also only one um, like you know in itself. It's not uh, to say okay, well now cooler climates will get all of the development um, or be subject to all of the development, right? So you can't make a climate based argument, or you can, but I wouldn't make a climate based argument to universally <laughs> move the infrastructure of the internet to a handful of places, that is part of a broader strategy. And we have to look at like how those strategies work um, and you know, where they locate power and you know, uh, how they're connected, whether they're connected via undersea cables, which you know, generally use less environment, like to have less of an environmental impact. So you know, in theory, and as per kind of an environmentally ethos, you would want to have data centers located on renewable grids, as well as in cooler locations, um, and be able to connect them through a lot of cables. At the same time, balancing that with things like data sovereignty, um, balancing that with the historical understanding of the systems that have, you know, shaped, you know, where and how the internet exists today. And so we can't just kind of resort to sort of environmental determinist or climate determinist arguments. And yet we have to work with the kind of reality of the energy systems and the, uh, the way that these uh, infrastructures are built. There are other possibilities and there are other solutions if we look at how and, you know, not just where we build these systems, but how we build them and what kinds of technologies we're going to like invest money in uh, for cooling or for other um, parts of managing the thermal processes uh, in the in the data center and in internet infrastructure. 
Yeah, I mean, a, a great line that I, I really, really stood out to me in, in that chapter was you saying that the solution never seems to be just less data, which would seem like maybe an, an obvious option, you know, in, in keeping with degrowth arguments and, and other things like that. Um, yeah, that really that really stood out to me. Um, so the struggle over thermal autonomy is obviously quite an animating principle um, in the background of all of the book. And I, I wanted to ask you, I mean, what scholars but also activist groups and organizations are kind of working on this beat arguing for thermal autonomy and ways we can organize to kind of make that a reality one of the things is that there are many scholars and activist groups who are working on i'd say thermal autonomy but they don't necessarily know it um so i would say you know to go back to the sweatbox chapter people who are working for prison abolition are working for thermal autonomy now, that's mm-hmm. not like the platform that they're running on. Um, and that's not the, the, the animating call, but yet it is, it is an outcome of prison abolition, right? It would be if you're not locking people in cages and you're giving them the capacity to determine their own thermal autonomy and their own kind of uh, thermal, you know, modulate their own temperature, then that would be like a, you know, an achievement of thermal autonomy for a huge segment of the population. And so I think that that's where I see thermal autonomy being most powerfully pursued is in organizations, in activism, in movements, in scholarship that is pursuing social change and alternative forms of social activity that are more equitable. Um, And in doing so, there are kind of massive uh, shifts in thermal autonomy. Um, I don't see, like, I don't think thermal autonomy itself is the, the kind of dominant rallying principle for, for kind of, uh, climate change yet, but it could be, um, I just think that it takes, it takes other forms, um, when it comes to, when it comes to climate change. Well, um, thanks so much for your time. I just wanted to finally ask you, what are you working on now? Are you carrying on in the kind of thermal realm or are you, are you looking elsewhere? I'm doing a bit of a uh, an applied project. So I'm working with the subsea cable industry on this project called Sustainable Subsea Networks. And so what we're doing is putting, I guess, my first and second books together um, in action to try to figure out ways to make the subsea cable system as sustainable as possible, to leverage the fact that it already is really sustainable to, say, link data centers on renewable grids to increase the sustainability of the network as a whole, while also paying attention to issues of data sovereignty and issues of kind of local autonomy. So I guess I've moved from, I've moved actually into the infrastructure. So now I'm working on the infrastructure itself, um, bringing all of this critical scholarship, I hope to bear on the operation of the kind of backbone of the internet. Well, that sounds absolutely amazing. Um, thanks so much for your time, Nicole. Thank you for having me on the show.